0: Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey
1: everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. Very happy to be joined by our superstar host, Steve Krupa. Hey, Steve. Hi Tom, how are you? Doing great. Doing great. You got a great interview today. You talked to uh Jonathan Schwartz of CareZone, which is in a really interesting space. Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, CareZone is uh is
2: disrupting uh the pharmaceutical space, particularly for those people that are are, are chronic and frequent, you know, reorderers of of pharmaceuticals. But what I think what's interesting about uh what they're doing is um uh, their business is, is being driven by, you know, consumer demand and consumer preferences. In other words, they're designing their business around needs that are being expressed to them by their customers. And, uh, one of the, the actual need of pharmaceutical, uh, delivery, uh, and renewal of prescriptions was not the original, uh, version of the business. The original version of the business was being able to, to, uh, collect and, and share, health information individual health information to people that you want to get it uh, ch- your children your physicians etc uh, from that uh, they identified this need and are and then went into the pharma- pharmacy business where they're where they're disrupting it pretty well
1: and of course we had uh, Amazon's move into this space yeah. with the PillPack acquisition and uh Jonathan talks a bit about that in, in the uh podcast. I don't want to give too much away, but uh certainly has an interesting perspective.
2: Yeah, I think so. I, I look I think Amazon has been hinting about getting into pharmacy for a while. Um you know, some people think it's the reason why CVS uh did did what they had to do in, in acquiring Aetna or you know, offering to acquire it. I guess that'll close eventually. Um in in terms of the whole nature of the pharmaceutical business, I think is very vulnerable to aggregation of consumers. I mean, if you really look at the way the business is run, it's it's largely run by a, a set of companies, which you'd call pharmacy benefit managers and retail outlets. Um, and the price of pharmaceuticals are not necessarily driven in any way, shape or form uh, by consumers. Um, they're set by the pharmaceutical companies and and negotiated by, Pharmacy benefit managers and um, if, as soon as consumers start to step into that equation uh, You've got a potential for in, you know an interesting outcome and look let's face it. I mean Amazon is the king uh, When it comes to sort of molding uh, business processes around consumer needs um, You know, I don't even know the last time I bought a retail good from anyone other than Amazon if I could mm-hmm. So um and online, you know certainly in, in other aspects so to the extent that they're getting into pill pack, they're they're cl- cl- clearly looking at this, and and Jonathan is is right there doing it ahead of them right now.
1: And Jonathan brings an interesting background into this. Again, I don't want to yeah. say too much, but uh, but he's uh, he's got some uh, some pedigree as far as buying uh, running companies and running running big companies.
2: Yeah, big company guy ran Sun Microsystems, ultimately sold with Oracle in the beginning of our decade. Um, and also, you know, we talked about this was you know, we, we, we you and I try to find these companies that we think are disruptive, right? Uh, he was sort of, um, uh, Sun Microsystems sort of received the wrath of disruption mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, they had proprietary operating system and networking and computing solutions around their Unix platform that were ultimately disrupted by a, what really is a, turned into a public good, uh, which is a Linux operating systems. And, you know, he had to deal with that and figure out the best place best to move for that company uh, now he's the, you know sort of the hunted has become the hunter if you will <laughs> um, and he is attempting is to disrupt a, an industry where there are some very large entrenched players uh, which consist not only of pharmaceutical companies but the, uh, the PBMs that, that manage the distribution of drugs.
1: Absolutely. It certainly is getting interesting. Alright let's get into this conversation with Jonathan Schwartz of CareZone <laughs>
2: Welcome uh, to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with uh, Jonathan Schwartz of CareZone. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan.
0: Hey, thank you, Steve. Thanks very much.
2: It, it's good to have you on. Uh, you, know, it, it, you know, just doing a little bit of research, it sounds like you raised a little bit of money here for CareZone, and you, uh, you just recently closed on a, on a round of financing. So you've been out there telling your story, I, I take it, over the last couple of months. Yeah, for about six years. <laughs> <laughs> it's an it's a never ending process, right? <laughs>
0: that that's what you do as a CEO.
2: So I I mean, people may know your background from from the technology sector and, and so on. Um, but I'd love to to hear um, how you decided to get into healthcare. It's a it's a it's a, it's definitely got a different dynamic to it as an industry um, than say computing or something like that. Um, what attracted you to the industry? Was there a personal story that made you want to get in and run a business and start something new here?
0: Uh, a- absolutely. Um, you know, the, you know, the origin story of the company is, uh, you know, I had a, a, a kid 16 years ago who, uh, had some challenges and, uh, and if you're a parent of a kid, you know what that's like, you've got a bunch of stuff you need to write down. He's totally fine now. Um, but It it was complicated, and so my wife, Sophie, and I were trying to figure out which notepad did we write that down on, and did you put that in email, or is that on the spreadsheet we're keeping? And I was talking to my oldest friend in life at the time, a guy named Walter, and he was saying, you know, yeah, it sounds like a, you know, ought to be a little more computing involved in that problem. (laughs) And both of us were busy at the time, so we went back to work, and um, I ended up uh, becoming CEO at, at Sun Microsystems. And, uh, and we stayed in touch, uh, and I'd obviously seen the industry you know, utterly transformed um, you know, with the rise of the Internet in the, in the 90s um, and really the proliferation of kind of new business models. And uh, so when we completed the sale of Sun to Oracle back in 2010, uh, you know, Walter and I were talking about the experiences we were both having with our parents, um, which were very similar to managing you know, the health issues of a child. The, you know, you've got a lot of medications to manage. You've got uh, contacts. You've got caregivers you want to share the information with. You've got, you know, maybe a journal item you wrote down about how, you know, mom, uh, you know, was dealing with a new medicine or something. And, and it just struck us both that, uh, you know, the Internet was really good at helping you find a date or, you know, buy a sweater, but it wasn't particularly good at doing what almost 100% of humans will do, which is take care of themselves or a loved one. And thus began CareZone and mm-hmm. the idea that you should be able to use technology in a safe environment to write down the things that really matter and then to manage and organize all the activities that go along with taking care of someone, either yourself or someone else. And so that was really the genesis of, of where care, CareZone came from.
2: So if I remember, the founding of the company was somewhere in early 2012, right? Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, the we our, our first funding, you know, we were kind of... Uh, you know, thinking about how we would approach the problem. The first funding was in 2012. Uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, we launched the, the website. And then that's uh, why we have a, uh, our mascot is an owl. Um, owls are seriously protective of, of their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and the owl's name is Val for Valentine's Day. Nice. And, uh, and so we opened the site and then we saw people starting to manage information. And it became very clear to us in 2012, that the number one data type that they wanted to manage was medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and medicines for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which is, um, you know, it, you know, there, there are things you need to write down, things you need to ingest, things you need to purchase, and things you need to re- you know purchase repeatedly over a long period of time. And <clears throat> just getting the support to get all of that in one place, um, you know, seemed like something we needed to help with. And it also turns out one of the artifacts of medicines is they have really complex names. And so if you want to type hydrochlorothiazide with your thumbs on a phone, it turns out that's hard. And so we developed some techniques to enable you to use the camera on your phone to scan a medication bottle independent of which pharmacy dispensed it to you. So we could gather all the data on that vial, and the data on a vial is actually defined legally. It's defined by the board of pharmacy in, in whatever state you live in and it's got some super high-value information on it. It's not only the medicine and strength and uh, instructions for when you're supposed to take it and your refill cycles. It also has your doctor's name on it. And so you know who to contact in the event you need to get a, you know, a, new, uh, a new prescription. Uh, you know, when you start scanning medicines for people, you start learning some really interesting stuff. Like you see people who are scanning 10 medicines from three pharmacies with five refill cycles, and it doesn't take you long to figure out those people need some help. Um, either consolidating down to one pharmacy or just getting home delivery. And so um, as soon as we started scanning medications, it became kind of obvious that what we were scanning were actually receipts um, for products that people were going to buy in all likelihood for the rest of their lives. And that is what kind of began the business side of CareZone. Once we figured out how to help people manage that information, we then started to build the business around the idea that we could help them actually get their medicines.
2: It's interesting. So, when you started the site, was it sort of like put in any information that you want about managing your health, or was was it was it was it very specifically tailored to a certain way of managing? How how loose was it when when the first site first went up?
0: It was the most general thing you could imagine. It was a you know the odds are good if you're taking care of somebody, you've got a lot of information you want to write down. We want to give you a place to write it down and share it. Okay. And and so you know, again, if you're taking care of a child, you're going to write down emergency contacts and then you're going to share it with a babysitter. In the event that you go out, you know, you want to make sure they've got access to them or you've got a care routine. You know, you take this medicine and then apply this ointment and then, you know, deal with these drops. So it was just a, 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 a very basic, hey, we want to give you a safe place to write things down. We made it really easy. Um, when we, uh, you know, built the app, uh, which came shortly thereafter in about 2012, you know, later in the year. And then we saw people really clamoring for uh, reminders and prompts and they wanted to track adherence. You know, did I take my med? I don't remember. Um, you know, look back across the past week, you know, how many times did I miss my med? Um, you know, and we just began to see more need for calendaring and coordination of volunteers and kinds of, you know, all the things that go into taking care of somebody. It's not just writing information down, it's making that information active and trying to really use it to simplify people's lives.
2: That's cool. I, I mean, I, I how did they find the site initially? Did you advertise? Did you buy space on WebMD or some other medical sites? What was the way
0: that people got to see what you were up to? So we're To this day, we're, we're about 50-50 paid versus organic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of... Um, you know, emergency responders, or professional caregivers, or um, you know, family members who introduce folks to care zones. So, you know, uh, you know, health healthcare in general tends to you know have a negative viral coefficient. The you know, yeah, last sure. thing in the world you share your med list with somebody. Yeah. Um, just plain old um, you know word of mouth gets us our you know, and, and we've had relationships with healthcare systems. We had a relationship with AARP for a while. Um, And then on the paid side, it's just, uh, you know, we don't necessarily go look for health conditions. We just look for people. You know, people tend to correlate to health conditions. Um, So, uh, you know, we've never really gone after a clinical condition. We've gone after, you know, humans who kind of fit the demographic of somebody who's probably managing a lot of meds. So the odds are good if you're 19 or 24, you're not managing a lot of meds. The odds are good if you're, you know, if you're on Medicare, on average, you're on four and a half meds. So you know, the older you get, the more likely it is you're on a chronic medicine.
1: We'll take a quick break from this conversation to remind you that the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit is happening on October 11th. We have some great speakers lined up. We'll be announcing them very soon, including uh, some very, very big names in the uh, in the industry. So you can of course wait for the uh, wait for us to tell you who's going to be there, or you can just uh, register. And trust us that it's going to be a great day. Go to dhis.net to register for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is happening on October 11th in Boston. What's interesting to me
2: is, is that, and, and, and this is <clears throat> a little bit of personal experience, a little bit of anecdote, a little bit of just sort of like research, that health oriented apps, health oriented uh, media tend to have short lifespans, right? So I understand people are on the meds for a long period of time, but um, but the way that people use sort of like, for example, apps that can improve your health, like eat, have you eat better or a way of sort of monitoring your health, how much, you, you know, logging your weight every day, et cetera, have fairly short lifespans in general where people just sort of use them for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months, And then ultimately revert. Maybe they come back to them at some point down the road. How is the consistency of your user base? And and if it's, I'm I'm guessing, given your success, it's pretty good. In which case, my question would be, what's the secret to getting people to really use the product?
0: Um, So it is a very sticky app for a couple reasons. Um, One of them is the moment we've scanned in all that data, we've become a system of record for you. Mm -hmm. So... Um, You know, so engagement absolutely, you know, trails off over time. Um, You know, we we tend to have fairly high engagement in part because, you know, we've spent the last six years optimizing for engagement. So, you know, we're not just reminding you to take your meds. We're also, you know, giving you uh, feedback on whether you have and tracking them and giving you, you know, kind of psychological rewards. We give you a gold owl if you do things well. Um, So a lot of those techniques, we just engineered engagement into the app and we you know, after about a year, about a third of folks who are using the app are still going to be using the app. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it, when we compare ourselves to others, we're more likely to compare ourselves, you know, to LinkedIn uh, than we would to, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a low engagement app. But, you know, we're, no one's as high as Instagram and Snapchat. But, right. Uh, in, in the world of health, I, I think we, we probably stand apart um, just given how, how good a job our team has done and really figuring out what, what drives value to the consumer. Um, but we're, it's also a very chatty app. I mean, we, the folks that we talk to want to hear from us. They want the refill reminder. They want you know, tips on how to manage their blood pressure, how to sleep well. Um, so we, we try to do a good job of being a part of the community of, of care for the individuals that we serve. And, it, and again, if you, if you think about who we serve, you know, we serve a lot of folks who, who really need the help. I mean, our, our average consumer is on six meds. And, uh, you anyway, know, and meds tend to bankrupt people. So, um, you know, we, we see folks who, who need all the help they can get, and, and there's, you know, oftentimes very little they can afford. So we're also always looking for ways that we can make their pharmacies more efficient. So we promote, you know, a discount card that enables them to take, uh, you know, their, their phone to their pharmacy and save some money on their next transactions. Um, and we also provide a whole variety of free services, free pharmacy services where we'll go out and pick up meds for you. Um, and so uh, you know the, the core of what we do is we try to help people. the more effective we are in helping them, the more likely they are to keep the app.
2: So as you sort of collect so it sounds to me from your story you got to, you, people started to use the um, to use the app um, and then and then you had to say, well what what services? Should I be providing to this uh, population where I can begin to earn some money on, on what they're doing?
0: It, it was less subtle than that. It was We had <laughs> uh, a whole variety of consumers say, look, I love your app, but I'm really tired of all the help you're giving me when what I really need is for you to get my meds to me. And so at that moment, we had to figure out if we could get a license to be a pharmacy in the state of California. And it turns out a venture-funded company can't get a license to be a pharmacy in the state of California.
2: I don't know if Amazon can get it, to tell you the truth. I guess we'll find out at some point.
0: Uh, They can because they're a public company. And so, I mean, a funny story is when we we started trying to figure out how to generate revenue, uh, and people were asking for their meds. We turned to a company called PillPack and said, Hey, we know how to generate leads. Why don't we send them to you? Um, so that was our, our first experience in kind of validating that we knew how to generate customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up, uh, you know, creating a separate entity, um, you know, that was the pharmacy and now cares on pharmacy, um, is dispensing, uh, out of Richmond, California. And there's another sub that, that dispenses out of Tennessee. Um, and, and, and so that then became a, a means of driving revenue, um, you know, for for both companies, which is figuring out how to how to make sure that we get meds to people. But if you're familiar at all with the world of pharmacy, it's it's made very complicated by this kind of layer of company that sits in the middle and just siphons value out of the out of the system. And if you're in the if you're a technologist, you're horrified that this tier even exists. So those kind of pharmacy brokers who sit in the middle and try to vector all the revenue to themselves, you know, end up being your competition because you've got to find ways to leverage the laws and regulations to make sure that you can go serve consumers who need help.
2: Well, I've always argued that the pharmacy benefit management industry, and we don't have to talk long on this, should be a public good. I really don't know what they do uh, that uh, a, a group of people organizing themselves couldn't do without them.
0: I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's, there's you know, organizations called the GPOs, Group Purchasing Organizations, yeah. which simply exist as nonprofits to aggregate purchasing power. Um, and what happened with the PBMs is they, they began as group purchasing organizations, just aggregating purchasing power, and then they figured out they were going to vector all the purchases to themselves. And you know, one of the problems with group purchasing organizations, which is in part what what makes them to be nonprofit, is their job is to get a lower discount, you know, or as, as big a discount as they can every year, which, which if you think about it, is kind of a self-defeating business model because as soon as you've gotten you've squeezed that last penny out, then there's no more revenue for you, and you you know in one way or another, you're just not as valuable as you were the first year where you got, you know, 20% discount. And so what the PBMs do is they get on the other side of the transaction and they get a cut of the revenue. So they're not only getting, uh, you know, a rebate from the purchases, so as the prices go up, they make more money. They're then also vectoring purchases to their own captive mail-order pharmacies, which charge these, you know, usurious prices back to, you know, the payers. So I I, I don't really understand why they still exist. I'm still scratching my head wondering that.
2: No, I mean, I just feel like, you know, 320 million people could negotiate some pretty good discounts if they all decided they wanted to, right?
0: Amen. I feel like we're related.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't really believe in socialism, but in, in, in this particular instance, it seems to me if the only goal is to get a better price of drugs, uh, you know, it's like, let's get together and get a p- better price on drugs and let's do it the right way, you
0: know? Well, and I, I don't know if you know the, the dirty, the sordid history of this. And and so what uh, what you're alluding to, obviously, is that uh, America, on behalf of Medicare, doesn't negotiate with the drug industry. So the, the VA, the Veterans Administration, does negotiate as, as a single entity. It has more purchasing power than almost any other organization on earth. And it gets fabulous prices for for you know, for veterans and soldiers, which is great. But for Medicare, which is what, you know, pays for a huge amount of medicine in the U.S., going to our, you know, largely our senior folks, um, they're disallowed specifically. Uh, the, the CMS is disallowed from negotiating directly with the drug manufacturers. And the reason why that's the case is back when the legislation that, uh, that said that Medicare would start paying for drugs was passed, it's called the Part D legislation, There was a Republican congressman named Billy Tozen who made sure written into the legislation was a prohibition that the the government could not negotiate directly with the drug manufacturers. And you'll never guess what happened when Billy Tozen left Congress.
2: he became a lobbyist for the drug companies?
0: He became the president of the American pharmaceutical lobby. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it, it is. I mean that alone probably costs America forty or fifty billion dollars a year. Sure. And then you add in all the intermediaries and there's another fifty billion dollars a year. So I think there's a there's a lot of savings that could be happened with some you know, to, to your point that could happen if somebody just decided to change the way the system works. And all that money would go back to, you know, helping people be well as opposed to, you know, bankrupting them. But and I and I think, you know, just kind of getting back to the, the origin story of CareZone, You know, what technology tends to do is it tends to make things more transparent. They become more visible. And as a result, that visibility drives efficiency. And I think, you know, my interest on the technology side was, you know, just watching what it was like caring for a family member. Um, You know, every other B2C market, if you think about it, whether it's banking or media or transportation or travel, they've all been completely reinvented through technology but pharmacy was completely unautomated and undigitized. And so when we started looking at ways of appealing to a broad market, trying to basically digitize pharmacy and to help people get better access to medicines, they're absolutely um, intermediaries who who fight with us. I mean, to this day, Express Scripts still doesn't want us to exist, Um, but consumers really want the help. I mean, people are really, really loyal to convenience And, you know, why shouldn't your experience of interacting with a pharmacy be as delightful as your experience of interacting with Netflix or interacting with iTunes? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, in essence, what we tried to build. And I think Amazon's acquisition of PillPack, you know, we looked at as, you know, they were our number one competitor. So on on the one hand, uh, you know, it's bad news. Uh, Amazon isn't known for losing. Uh, On the other, it's great news because it really kind of makes the point um, the market is going to change, and I know a lot of the intermediaries and, and incumbents are saying, oh, it's more complicated than it looks. It's not. You know, we're proof of that. We've been able to stand up and scale up a, a big pharmacy. Um, and, uh, and, and with that, uh, you know, with Amazon's entrance and with, I think, the arrival of e-commerce to, 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 to pharmacy, I think we're going to see radical improvements in uh, effectiveness in customer service and convenience and all the things that Carezone has been trying to do you know for the last five years I think that's going to become commonplace those that will be table stakes and if you don't have that level of uh, automation or convenience for the consumer the consumer is going to leave you know I think at the end of the day Amazon wins for a variety of reasons one of which is it just makes life more convenient for yeah, people it does um, that, that has been the opposite <laughs> You know, I was talking to one big uh, <laughs> retailer recently, and I won't name who, uh, who, who said to me, and I, I state this in all seriousness. He said, that's fine, but pharmacy's different. different. How, how is Amazon going to get our customer list? <laughs> so wow. I, wow. You must not be paying attention. Not paying <laughs> they paying already attention. had your customer list.
2: I'm, I'm going to guess, but I, I, the way you've gotten is you've inserted yourself actually into the networks of the PBMs. So, so you have to be part of the PBM network in order to fulfill scripts. Uh, in the instance that I'm insured by uh, insurance co- by an insurance company that uses, say, Express Scripts just to pick a name as its PBM, if I want to fulfill my drug purchases through you, you, do you have to be in that network in order to do that?
0: Absolutely. And CareZone Pharmacy is in network uh, with almost every PBM. Um, Express Scripts right now is trying to fight with us because they don't like the fact that we're, um, you know, taking customers who Express Scripts wanna, wants to bring to their mail order pharmacy. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the law is very much on our side. There's, there's a, a, a law, um, you know, so if you're familiar with network neutrality, and I suspect you and your listeners are, sure. um, there's an equivalent law in the world of healthcare called uh, the Any Willing Provider Statutes. And at least for Medicare and Medicaid, which are the bulk of the pharmacy market, um, the Any Willing Provider Statutes say you can't exclude anyone who wants to participate in the market. And so that, uh, that's a pretty important regulation, um, and Express Scripts is attempting to violate it, and I suspect they're going to be told by regulators that they can't, um, but ultimately that's what ensures that the most vulnerable segments of the population, who really are who CareZone serves you know, primarily, um, we'll get access to whatever services um, that they wish. Um, you know, the government's the payer. The government gets to make that that call, not not Express Scripts.
1: So when
2: when you begin to, there's a lot of questions I have for you here, and I'm going to try to be succinct with them because I don't want to make this you know too too long of a discussion. I know we both have have other things we got to do today, but I, I have to ask. You know, it feels to me that um, you've got a lot of information on the population of people that you're serving with this, and I guess. One thing that you can do is sort of aggregate, you know, oh, I've got a lot of people with this insurance or I've got a lot of people in this area of the country and begin to sort of force your way into these networks, which is which I'm guessing you were able to do. Um, but what are you able to do with this data? It is to some extent private, right? It, it's it's some, it, I don't know if it's legally PHI or not. I guess some of it is. Um, so what what are you able to do on behalf of your customers with this information in order to serve them?
0: Uh, so first of all, we look at the information that consumers have shared with us as their information. It's not ours. Okay. So, uh, so the kinds of things we do is we ask a consumer, for example, would you like us to compare your uh, drug list today against a couple of different Medicare plans to see if your copays might go down if you moved plans? And if the consumer says yes, then we go off and we do the analysis and we tell them which Medicare plan they should move to. Um, uh, beyond that, we, we haven't really spent a lot of time focused on the clinical side of things beyond being a pharmacy. Um, you know, the kinds of challenges you run into in the world of pharmacy, leaving aside some of the industrial challenges we just talked about, are, are really uh, often much more basic, like did you take your medicines? Mm-hmm. And so uh, driving adherence and helping you know, support people through adherence, uh, finding them access to coupons and discounts. Um, those tend to be the order of the day. Um, I, I think the data that we're building, we view it as belonging to the consumers and not to us. So, you know, it's not really ours to monetize, and, and we don't really have any plans to do so.
2: So, and, and you, I'm assuming that you have you don't you don't have plans to oh maybe you do. I mean, do you do you see the pharmaceutical companies as being a, a, a revenue source for you in terms of advertising things like that?
0: So what we're able to do uh, as an example is when we scan a consumer's medicines, we know, I mean, one of the problems that the manufacturers have is they, I mean, if you think about it, how, how bizarre is this? They invent these like life-changing medicines and then they don't know who takes them. Right. And yeah. so we can we can bridge that gap for them. So when we see somebody show up, you know, who's taking Savalvia or, you know, Trumpia or one of the kind of really high value breakthrough medicines, We can put them in touch with in the event they want it we can put them in touch with the manufacturers so i think the manufacturers you know we view them first of all just as as technologists from our vantage point they're on the side of the angels i mean you you invent a medicine that saves people's lives um you know i know there's lots of theatrics around drug pricing but i i don't look at the manufacturers as the source of the problem i look at all the middlemen as the source of the problem um you know when you when you patent a life-changing drug you know that that that's a social good. You like help progress society. So, I think uh, you know they're kind of a very natural partner for us, just to help connect the folks that we have back to the manufacturers. Manufacturers, for example, can give them coupons that eliminate their copays, or it can help them get access to nurses and coaches who might help them through challenges they might be having. So, I think those are relationships that we're looking to really build out over the next couple years. Um, And and certainly, I think when you look at what a lot of the intermediaries do in the world of pharmacy, they're fundamentally involved in distribution, which is how do you get the medicine from, you know, on the formulary, in a warehouse, to a distribution facility, to a retailer, to the counter, you know, out to the consumer. In the world of the internet, the value of distribution has plummeted. You know, it's just not that, it's not that big a deal. So, you know, the, the idea that manufacturers are giving half of their revenue back to all the intermediaries, seems a little funny to us. Um, you know, and the more direct the relationship, from my vantage point, they have with their consumers, the more effective that relationship will be. And the example I use is there's a reason why Apple created Apple stores. You know, they wanted to build a direct relationship with consumers who could take advantage of the innovations they've created, and I think they did, a, they did a great job in doing that. I think at some point we're going to start to see manufacturers do exactly the same thing. Yeah, you know, Tony, I, I like
2: to think about it like this. See if you see if this resonates with you. But um, I think what we've done is we've gone beyond sort of technology as being the interesting thing, and I think we've moved to service levels being the interesting thing. So, for example, it doesn't matter whether you, you how you're delivering to me the service. Obviously, you're going to be using technology for the most part, because that's the beginning of creating high service levels and high availability and all of that good stuff. But it really is the quality of that stuff that, that um, and, 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 and of the service levels that matters.
0: I, I totally agree with that. And I, and I think, I mean, think about the following. You, you've spent billions of dollars inventing a medicine that is going to have some transformative effect on a patient, um, but you never meet the patient. And you don't have it. I mean, today, when you build a car, it has a network connection. You build a refrigerator, it has a network connection. A dishwasher has a, has a network connection. But for some reason, you know, given all these intermediaries who are relatively low tech, um, you know, there's roughly 200 pharmacies in the city of San Francisco. Think about that. It's a population of 800,000 people. You know, I think there are as many pharmacies as, as there used to be independent bookstores. I mean, we're, we're definitely saturated with pharmacies. They don't deliver a lot of value. Um, and I think a digital connection back to the manufacturer and back to the clinicians is, is the order of the day. And CareZone enables exactly that. That's what we've been trying to do, build a relationship with consumers and then get those consumers connected to folks who can really have an impact on their care and their wellness. That's, that's, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The technology's is uh, interesting if, if that's your bent, but really it's the services that are, that are going to change the outcomes, and that's what we've got to get connected to.
2: All right. I got one last question for you, and I'm going to just throw you – we're going to step over be a little bit tangential. Um, but it, the listeners probably do know your background at Sun, and, and uh, you know, Sun was involved in really the transition – was caught, I think, a little bit in the transition to a more consulting-oriented business on the one hand, and then also the open-source phenomenon and, and the sort of freedom or liquidity of technology – that was sort of coming into, coming into, the, into, into the system around, around 2009, 2010, and, and, and a little bit before that. So you're sort of managing a very large company that was facing some pretty seismic shifts in the way its core business was, was headed. And now you're starting a company that's trying to be a, a business that creates the seismic shifts. Uh, in an industry, right? Sort of, kind of interesting, at least from my perspective. I'm wondering if you could speak to that and give us a sense of what how it feels and how it feels running those businesses under those separate circumstances. I mean, the people that you're trying to disrupt were somewhat analogous to where you were at Sun uh, ten years ago, right?
0: I, I mean, I it is it is eerie to me that you bring this up because I was having breakfast this morning with a a friend of mine in the investment community, um, and uh, and, and so, the, you know, when, when I was at Sun, the, the rise of, of open source was obvious in the early 90s. And it was obvious among developers who started picking up Linux and started contributing to the community and starting to build out tools and, and platforms that, that made life simpler for them. And the CIOs at the time and the folks who sold big computers, um, you know, for the most part said, oh, that'll never matter. And, and I think what they were saying is in my, in my career, in my lifespan is, is doing what I'm doing, it's not going to matter. But for the most part, if you were a technologist, you absolutely knew that was how you could, you know, you could blow those horns long, long in advance of the change. And so the conversation I was having, uh, you know, with, with my friend this morning was the, the, the evolution of pharmacy to be an e-commerce business was obvious about four years ago. And it was very clear. I mean, why is that the only product uh, that isn't really available in, in a digital form? And uh, and yet, you know, we've been out kind of talking to retailers and talking to industry participants, and there's just been this general, oh, well, it's complicated. Oh, it's never going to happen. Oh, you know, our foot traffic is too important. Um, which is why, as I said, you know, Amazon acquiring PillPack has, has had this marvelous clarifying effect because now it's obvious. Um, so, you know, I, I think... Uh, you know, change is a good thing. In general, change, um, you know there might be a few exceptions here or there in American politics, but uh, you know change drives progress, uh, especially in the world of technology. drives efficiency, drives improvements, drives transparency. Um, so we're absolutely trying to drive the change in pharmacy and, and also the change in caregiving. I mean, care zone is fundamentally about helping people care for themselves and their families. Pharmacy is only one of those services. It's a very important service, but it's only one. Um, And I think being on the front of of that feels really good. You know, being a little threatening to the incumbents feels really good. You know, I'd rather, um, you know, be a disruptor than be on the disrupted side. So, uh, but I think the the analogy, uh, you know, is is perfect. I mean, we we see what's happening. It's now quite obvious. And so now the question is, what's the rest of the industry going to do? I think consumers really prefer in every aspect of their lives, having an immediate, convenient, high bandwidth, you know, uh, 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 high data interaction you know, when they want something. They wanna know when is it gonna arrive? Uh, how much is it gonna cost? You know, what's your availability? What time should I be home? And those are all the things that, that we can offer through, through CareZone, and I think the rest of the industry is gonna follow along, and if they don't, I think they run the risk of you know, being on the, on, the, on the wrong side of the consolidation when it occurs.
2: Very good. Well, we've we've run out of time. Last last thing on on your end, um, how do people find out more about CareZone? Are you still blogging? I know you've been you were one of the first sort of famous bloggers back in the old days. Um, you know,
0: I started I, I started tweeting recently again. It's been a while, um, in in part to counter some of the you know libelous things that Express Scripts was saying about us, um, and uh, but you know to find out more about CareZone. Go to your app store and download CareZone, and you'll, you'll, you'll know a lot about us. I mean, we're very obvious with what we do and how we do it. So, um, And look, Steve, I, I really appreciate your taking the time. It's been, it's been great chatting with you.
1: All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Breaking Health Podcast listeners, for joining us on the podcast. If you would, please subscribe to the podcast so we can send future podcasts directly to you and your listening device. Please do tell your friends about the podcast. If you are so inclined, you can also uh, let us know how we're doing. Give us a ranking on iTunes. Uh, give us uh, Leave a comment there. You can reach me at Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. And you can email me as well, Tom at Healthogy.com. Healthogy is spelled like the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y. Healthogy is the producer of the Breaking Health podcast and many great events, including the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is happening on October 11th. Again, folks, our co-chairs, Bill Geary and Robert Mittendorf, are doing a hell of a job this year rounding up some high-powered speakers. You will want to be there. Please do go to dhis.net to register. And do so before August 11th to get our discount rate. That's it. Tune in next time for a great tale of innovation on the Breaking Health Podcast.